The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're discussing ways that cities can adapt to a warmer, more crowded world. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell. This week, we're listening to Cities of the Future, a panel recorded live at Convergence 2014 in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Hello and welcome to Cities of the Future. This is the panel that will attempt to tackle what we might expect to see in the years ahead. Uh, and that is if we somehow manage to avoid a zombie outbreak, the singularity, and or some previously unknown disease epidemic, what might our cities look like? Uh, particularly given the fact that climate change could actually wreak far more havoc than any of those scenarios. All right, I'm Jamie Bernstein. I'm a writer at Skeptic. Um, and I'm on this panel because my academic background is in public policy. I'm really interested in like how civilizations are organized and how differences in the future might change how we need to organize um, as people and also how we determine what policies we're going to need and what the government's going to do and who's going to pay for things and all those fun bureaucratic questions. Hello, my name is Ryan Consul. I am also a writer on the Skeptic Network, but totally unrelated to that. I have a background in mechanical engineering and science education. My name's Sean Lawrence Otto. I uh, am the organizer of the U.S. Presidential Science Debates. I have a book out called Fool Me Twice, Fighting the Assault on Science in America. And I work a lot at that intersection of uh, policy, public policy, politics, and evidence, and what it really means to have evidence-based policy in a time when a lot of policymakers are basing their decisions on ideology and party loyalty. Sean, why don't you uh, start off and give us a brief rundown of what we might see in regards to climate change in, let's say, 10 years? Oh, well, in 10 years, uh, that's a fairly narrow horizon. Um, the, uh, I think that we can expect to see a lot more of the um, irregular weather that, patterns that we've been seeing right now, uh, particularly as the jet stream uh, continues to slow. One thing that we've, you guys have probably noticed over the last couple of years is how, for instance, some uh, winters are extremely warm and fairly dry, and others are extremely cold and damp, wet, like this last one. And those are uh, predicted effects of climate change that are probably going to become more pronounced over the next decade. Uh, what happens is, is that uh, in the northern latitudes, you know, it's all ocean, and as the ice up there melts, we tend to see more rapid climate change up around the North Pole and, and in the Arctic. Um, as that ice melts, there's more dark water exposed, and that dark water absorbs heat instead of bouncing it back into space like white ice and snow would. And so as that warms in the north, there's less of a temperature differential between northern latitudes, between the Arctic, and moderate latitudes. And with that, we see less speed difference, difference in the movement of the atmosphere up there. The jet stream, as a result, which usually just travels quite quickly uh, at that boundary between northern and moderate latitudes, starts to slow down uh, and begins to meander more in a serpentine-style pattern. 
As a result of that meandering, then, we can have huge spikes where the pattern is going up, the jet stream is arcing far north, and then we have all this warm air that moves up from southern latitudes and stays there. And then we see marches like we saw, say, three years ago, where it was in the 80s in Minnesota in early March. And we were breaking all kinds of weather records by 50-degree differences from prior years. And then when the serpentine pattern drops down, we see a lot more Arctic air, like we saw this last winter where we heard the term the polar vortex, and it was slipping down over North America because of that dip in the serpentine pattern in the jet stream. So that's one of the factors that will tend to cause more extreme um, weather changes uh, and longer patterns of weather uh, being stuck in one area or another. So. More rain, heavier rain, followed by drier and warmer is something that is probably uh, going to be more likely. Uh, also, a warmer atmosphere. As the atmosphere warms up, we expect that we're going to see more uh, uh, water being absorbed by the atmosphere and then heavier rainfall. So what does that all mean for cities? Well, cities are going to have to do a lot more accommodation. There's a lot of issues with flash flooding and with stormwater runoff that we haven't uh, really planned for to accommodate sudden deluges. Uh, we also have to talk about aquifer depletion that's starting to happen in various aquifers around the Twin Cities. How we get our water, I expect that we're going to see a lot more transition towards uh, uh, catch basins uh, and other ways of retaining rainfall. Uh, and using that for uh, watering and separation between our stormwater runoff and our sanitary sewer systems. Uh, that's one aspect. I also see a lot of changes in electricity and the way that we use electricity for mobility. As congestion increases, we're going to see a lot more shift to uh, electric and multimodal transportation systems. Okay, so can we, is it possible to speculate what we, what we might see out of climate change in 50 years then? Yeah, there are a lot of models that talk about that. Um, you know, over the, uh, by the end of the century, <clears throat> there are several projections that show that sea level, because of the warming Arctic and Antarctic regions particularly, a lot of ice is going to melt. But beyond the ice melting and warmer water, the oceans are 70% of the land surface, right? And they're, they're absorbing a lot of energy right now. And as they absorb energy, they begin to expand. So it's not just melting ice, it's also expanding water. And as it expands, where does it go? Well, the sea level rises. So we're expecting about uh, up to about three feet by the end of this century in sea level rise. Now, you guys all saw what happened, for instance, with Hurricane Sandy in New York. Um, that kind of storm surge is going to be a lot higher, a lot more energy behind it. So we're going to see coastal cities where 80% of the population lives more frequently inundated uh, by storm surges. Um, over a 50-year time window, there's a lot of modeling that shows that eventually a population is going to move a little bit more inward uh, and also away from agrarian districts that are going to become drier, uh, but also more corporatized in our farming uh, to meet the higher population demands in a energy depleted uh, environment. So more cities, uh, more uh, uh, people moving around away from some coastal areas into inland areas, uh, higher congestion, a lot more energy demands, probably more things like urban farming as we make attempts to cool down cities with 
uh, terraced farming and high rises and with roof gardens. Um, and a lot more dealing with the issue of, of transition to electric power uh, away from fossil fuel power. I would expect that there's going to be a lot more conversation about nuclear energy, and there's probably going to be a lot of, of uh, more battling between extraction industries and, and corporations and the interests of, of general people. All right, so Sean's touched on some of the, the potential uh, tangible effects that we could see. Do you, does anyone want to flesh out some of those? Population, maybe? All right, uh, so the things I've read, I'm not a population growth expert, but a lot of the models say that our population is going to sort of bounce off 9 billion, which is a very big number, um, and then drop again. Uh, hopefully, we're all going to make really good decisions, and it's going to go up, and we're going to, oh, this was a bad idea. Let's get birth control under, like, sort of globalized, and we'll just tip that back down to something we can manage. But most likely, it is going to uh, hit that large number, and there will be starvation and disease spreading all over the place. <laughs> Thank you for coming to our Sunday morning panel. <laughs> One of the really interesting things about that is what does it do economically? Because right now our economic models are all based on, on a larger, younger population demographic, for instance, with Social Security and pensions that can support an older population demographic. And we're starting to see a switch right now where the younger generation is saying, wait a minute, all you old people, I, we're not going to do this. We can't afford to work half of our lives just to support you guys. So it's, I think we're going to see a lot more intergenerational tension around these topics about pensions, about health care, about survivorship, about how do we care for people as they get older, and probably some changes uh, in the way that we have managed that in the past. Um, I would expect that it may even lead to uh, uh, grandparents moving back into the house to do child care and to be taken care of in turn. Yeah, and not only that, but um, any time that you have changes in population, you have to change pretty much everything you're doing in your society around that. Um, so it, it not just demographic shifts, but just in terms of more or less people. And especially if people are migrating, we're going to have cities growing very quickly um, and possibly being at capacity, which means that there are going to be people who are falling through the, tra the cracks. There's not going to be enough necessarily jobs. Um, we don't know if we can support the energy demands or the food demands of all those people in one place. Although um, it actually would be, being in cities is far more efficient and in fact a lot of things are actually much easier if, when you have everybody in one place rather than like spread out into lots of rural areas. Um, you can sort of centralize everything. Um, but if we start seeing population drops, or even in certain areas as there is migration away from some areas, um, there, once you build, like you've built your city and it is a certain size, it's a lot easier to grow than it is to um, get smaller. So once people start moving out, you end up with, well, basically Detroit. You end up with lots of infrastructure, but no people to use it. Or maintain it. Or maintain it. Which, actually, I'd like to bounce off of that whole, the fact that cities are substantially better in a lot of ways than what we in North America have decided is the ideal. We have suburbs everywhere, and putting four and a half people and a dog and a cat 
in a fully detached house with a big front yard and a big backyard that we have to water and cut um, and drive to work and from work and drive to school and from school. It is about the least efficient way we could use our space and energy. Um, and as energy gets more expensive, which is pretty much inevitable, um, though we're probably going to see less of a draw to live in the suburbs. It's going to be untenable for anybody but the very wealthy. And we will probably see higher density cities. And when we do that, if we do it cleverly, we can make it much more efficient. We can share services. We can um, migrate. Like just heating a building, if you do it cleverly, you can take the people that live on one side and all the heat they're generating from sitting around their house and pipe it over to somebody else's apartment who would have otherwise been running a furnace. And this is the sort of thing that is done in office buildings, but if we can start doing it in populated buildings as well, we can save a lot of energy. And I think it's going to become mandatory to do that kind of thing, to just make our systems more efficient with the energy we use and start doing something. I know I'm in the United States, and this is going to make some people angry. Maybe move towards some more socialist structures for our energy use. Canada! Yeah, but but on the other hand, when you have a lot of people in one place, um, and there's not sometimes like you you just can't build housing fast enough to fit everybody and everybody's needs, and then you end up with extremely high prices and people who can't afford those high prices. If you don't have enough housing in your little area and you have way more people, the prices go way up, and anybody who can't afford that is basically on the streets. On that same page, uh, the reason that people are going to migrate to the cities is because the suburbs will start to get more expensive than the cities, mm -hmm. and it will reach the point where people can't. There are people who can't afford to live in either the suburbs or the cities, or in rural areas. It's just going to become a more expensive world as our energy demands continue to increase. Now, I was I was interested, uh, Sean. You mentioned nuclear power. Now, that's a that's a very loaded word. So, why do you think we're going to be heading towards nuclear in the future? A couple of reasons. Uh, I I don't think that I. First of all, the adoption of, for instance, uh, electric vehicles is going to help a lot if we get the smart grid going uh, because they can be our energy battery system for the country uh, in a lot of ways. Um, but by the same token, with the population growth that we're talking about, up to potentially 9 or 10 billion people, uh, and the uh, unpredictability of nuclear power and the expense of storage systems, uh, large battery banks uh, and the scarcity of some of the minerals that are used and the expense of some of the minerals that are used in those uh, projected battery banks. I expect that there's going to be increasing public pressure to uh, build nuclear power and probably something like liquid thorium fluoride reactors, something that's quite a bit uh, cheaper, safer, and does less uh, uh, environmental damage build, uh, and creates less visible material. So I think we're going to eventually have to have the nuclear conversation. I'm not advocating for that, but I do think that that is definitely part of the political discussion moving forward. There's something we're seeing happening all over the place right now, and pretty much everybody in energy is going, okay, our energy production is going to be a suite of production. We're not just going to be, all right, time for nuclear. Let's throw out the coal, build all the nuclear plants. It's going to be wind and solar and nuclear 
if we're lucky, we're going to get fusion as well. There is a massive international project being built, I believe, on a mountain in France uh, called ITER. And it is the first, what they hope, working fusion reactor. But this thing takes billions and billions. I think it's $14 billion project investment from China, United States, the European Union. And if anybody stops getting along, that won't get built. And we will never see that technology. And therefore, our energy will just continue to skyrocket. And this thing, at $14 billion, with magnets the size of this hotel, is still, we're just hoping it's going to produce more energy than it took to get the thing started. So... Yeah, so if we, this is just a proof of concept at $14 billion. So it's going to be a while till that kind of thing comes online. Yeah, ITER has been in uh, production for about 20 years now. Um, it's probably going to take another 10 to 15 years before they actually finish it. There's a lot of politics that goes into whether somebody's going to fund it or defund it. And, and uh, it's... That that's that unpredictability of funding has really slowed it down, coupled with the questions about whether or not it will actually produce more energy than it takes. This is Science for the People. You're listening to Cities of the Future, recorded live at Convergence 2014. And we'll be back with more right after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell. This week, we're learning about the future of cities and other human spaces with panelists Ryan Consul. Sean Lawrence Otto and Jamie Bernstein. Can we talk a bit about food supply? Because uh, that could probably change a lot. Yeah, so I know um, that Sean mentioned urban farming earlier. And um, the big issue with urban farming is that it's extremely energy intensive. Um, it takes a lot more energy to grow some food in a building where you need probably mostly artificial light and lots of water than it would if you just, you know, grew your plant outside in a field in a bright sunny area. Um, so like the move to urban farming, which is something I hear about a lot, often energies is not really talked about, but that greatly, greatly increases the demand for energy. So like perhaps if you had it like n nuclear powered, but in that case, people don't really like living near a nuclear plant, so you'd probably have to put that out somewhere and then ship the energy in. Um, and whenever you're moving energy around, you're losing a lot of energy. It becomes more efficient there. So even food tends to come back to the question of energy. We'll also see a shift in what we consider staples and what we consider to be uh, luxury items. Right now, cow uh, is a staple food source in America and Canada. And that is a terrible decision on almost every front. Uh, if we start shifting towards things that are more uh, energy efficient to make, more nutrient dense, uh, like crickets, I believe comes up very regularly on Science for the People, um, 
then we can keep our cows and maybe eat them every now and then. But if we can shift that mindset, and I think it'll become necessary, um, then we can feed a lot more people much more efficiently in much less space. We may also see a need to start reclaiming our best farmland. The problem is we built all of our best cities on our best farmland because that's where people wanted to be. So where your house now is should be a farm and where it, your house should be should be a horrible rocky desert. Some of that is actually starting. It's really been, been interesting over the last couple of years. Um, some of the stuff Ray's talking about, that we have moved a little bit away from the suburban uh, density model and actually with the with land values in exurban areas, uh, they are more valuable now uh, as farmland. Uh, there are a lot of development uh, sites uh, in exurban areas around the Twin Cities that farmers have actually been buying because the price of farmland is so high that uh, it's cheaper for them to buy development land. So that may, that may accelerate uh, over the next 50 years. I would expect that it probably will and we'll see somewhat of a contraction uh, in our city footprint. So are there any other infrastructure changes that we want to talk about, potential infrastructure changes? Garbage is a huge one I'd like to talk about, uh, especially with 9 billion people and the way that we handle our garbage right now. Uh, transporting it uh, long distances, landfilling it, um, and hoping that it will just somehow magically disappear and go away. And it sits there in these these uh, semi-sealed but usually failing uh, plastic liners and produces methane gas, which is a uh, global warming gas that is about 30 times as powerful as carbon dioxide. So. I think that uh, the discussion about how we handle that, uh, not only about transportation, but also about reducing packaging, making packaging much more recyclable, getting towards a zero, zero waste model. I don't think that zero waste is necessarily uh, attainable unless you redefine some aspects of what waste is. Um, talking more about um, uh, uh, waste to energy facilities, uh, especially if they are carbon neutral, the ones where you can separate out recyclables and metal uh, so that you're not actually changing or adding to climate change by burning that as long as you can recapture the noxious chemicals and fumes you're emitting the same amount of carbon into the atmosphere that came out of the atmosphere um, and gaining electricity in the process so i think that there's going to be probably more pressure to deal with waste in a variety of those in that kind of multimodal approach between recycling and, and energy reclamation and a move away from landfilling just because it is so inefficient and polluting. Uh, our transportation system is probably also going to see uh, migrations away from the way we do things now. We've built our continent on the idea that cars are the greatest thing ever, but they're terrible. Uh, just maintaining the roads is incredibly energy intensive. So even if we come up with like the greatest electric car ever, we still have to keep our roads and our bridges going. And that is extremely expensive and energy intensive. As we get more connected to the internet, as we become more urban, the need to drive long distances starts to disappear. So the more people that work from home, on a low-powered computer, on a low-powered connection, that is vastly superior to trying to maintain the road that they would have to commute along. So I think we may see a growing 
move away from cars to walking, to working from home, to being able to bicycle or walk to your place of work, even if your place of work is something of a satellite site from the main office. You may not need to go there anymore because our virtual meeting is becoming more powerful and because the need to actually see a person in person or even go to a store is evaporating. Yeah, so I think one of the things that all of these things we've been talking about have been sort of dancing around is we're talking about a higher population, but also less food, less energy, less resources in general. And that combination is what leads straight to extreme inequality. So anybody who owns these resources or the companies that own the resources, they're the ones that are going to have basically all of the power and all of the money, and everybody else is then reliant on that. And so we're looking at a society with a lot of inequality and probably people moving to um, much more segregated in terms of like places that you're living. Um, so if you can afford it, you can have a nice place and maybe a car. Otherwise, like who knows where you're gonna be. Um, but that's definitely a consideration when we're talking about less resources. I know a lot of you people came here to say, when is my flying car coming? <laughs> it's not. It's the worst idea ever. Really energy intensive and has very little value. Also, have you seen the drivers? <laughs> so now I'm, I'm, I just want to follow up on what you're talking about. So if, we, if the potential is to see growing economic inequality, is there public policy changes that, that we can make to try and alleviate some of that or, or any other public policy changes that, uh, that might counteract some of the things that we might see? Yeah, so we can look at, obviously, like welfare or anything that sort of spreads the wealth around. Um, one of the problems that you get into as inequality becomes more extreme is that the people with the money are also the ones with the power, and they don't like policies like that. Um, so it becomes very difficult to sort of make them happen like the more inequality you have almost the harder it is to create some sort of welfare program um, so it would have to be something that's like in place from the beginning and maybe hard to get rid of um, or that somehow you've just convinced everybody that it's like better for everyone um, if it is this way um, but it's definitely it's definitely difficult and especially um, as like a lot of things we're talking about are automated, the more things that are automated, the less jobs there are also. Um, and so a lot of the jobs that a lot of people are doing, if now there's like robots, which I know we're gonna talk about later, um, suddenly there's also a lot less jobs, so a lot less people making money. And also, it just in general, the more inequality you have, sort of the smaller your tax base. So the government doesn't even necessarily have the money to be able to do anything to help anyone. 
Yeah, we're seeing some of that happening now um, with a shift towards more corporate power and more corporate-oriented policies uh, in the United States, but in other countries also, particularly where there's a lot of extraction industry going on. Uh, that's starting to happen a lot more in Canada. Um, Canada right now is kind of experiencing kind of Bush two, I think, <laughs> in a lot of ways, uh, the denial of science and the, uh, the trumping of ideology. Uh, that's happening in Australia, uh, also another big extraction con uh, company or country. See, company. It's, it's it's probably a company by now. Um, one of the problems that is going on with this is corporations have become multinational, and there. Uh, so we have a an international or a multinational, a global economy without a global regulatory system. So essentially, we've created the Wild West all over again on a global scale, and corporations are in a race towards the lowest uh, uh, cost of energy, the lowest cost of production, and the lowest regulation and the lowest cost of labor. So that's what's driving a lot of the policy and the political discussions that, that are going on right now, and that's what's driving a lot of this, this huge grab towards resource extraction. Um, and it makes it very difficult to get a handle on how to put this genie back in the bottle unless we have a much more powerful global regulatory system, something that the United Nations could implement but really has failed to implement because of the way that the United Nations is structured, the voting, the power distribution there. It's pretty much become paralyzed uh, on any level when we talk about global regulation or global government. But without that, we're essentially allowing uh, our economy to go unregulated and unchecked. And what regulation really is there for, what regulation does, is regulation increases freedom. And we've been talked about, uh, you know, told often now how regulation takes away your freedom. But what regulation really does is it prevents one person from dumping their waste on another person. It tries to level the playing field. And by leveling the playing field, it increases everybody's ability to make choices about their own lives. They're not getting their you know, waste dumped on them. They're not getting things dumped on them, externalities dumped on them uh, that they did not choose to have. So to the extent that we let the global economic system go unregulated, we are reducing freedom and increasing inequality. So a lot of these tensions, I think, I mean, we've heard words like socialism and we've heard words talking about corporations and, and increasing economic inequality. I think are going to become bigger and bigger social points of discussion and, uh, and probably uh, efforts at revolution in different parts of the world. Um, and that kind of revolution we've seen already happen enabled by this new technology of the internet and of social networks, which is in some ways a, can be a leveling of the playing field. Uh, because we're putting knowledge, power, and the ability to communicate on a broad level in the hands of individuals. So in some ways, that, uh, that is where I expect a lot of the fissures to happen, is along those economic things and around technology and the ability to communicate. Well, let's talk a bit about technology, because I know Jamie really wants to talk about robots. I do want to talk about robots. That's like why I signed up for this panel. I wanted to talk about robots. Um, because I've been imagining this future where we have a whole bunch of robots and everything's automated. Our cars are driving themselves, um, our factories and everything, like every our warehouses, it's all being done robotically now, but even more so in the future. But, and right now the sort of thing that we still have are like service jobs, 
But you can imagine that if our robots get really good, they could be doing a lot of those things as well. Um, so it, and it sounds great because I really want robots to just like do all these things for me. But on the other hand, I would like them to not, I would like them, I would, I do not want a robot data scientist because then I know I would be out of a job. Um, and in the past, whenever sort of society has moved towards um, types of automation, it's usually been in like one industry or it's very, it's in like one type of job and then people sort of, um, it might be bad in the transition, but eventually people transition to other things. But you can imagine that eventually if robots are doing so many things, there's nothing left to transition to, which means there are not very many jobs left. There's basically the people who will have all of the resources and all the power are those that own the robots um, or are maybe building the robots, but maybe robots are doing that. So our entire system that we have right now, our capitalist system where you get a job and or you sell something and you make money and then you go out and you use your money to buy things from other people who are selling things, that entire system breaks down and we basically can no longer even have a capitalist society. So we'd have to come up with something new, something that um, somehow, I don't know, but we would not be able to continue with capitalism in a society without jobs. Um, I'm gonna, uh, <laughs> so as an engineer, robots are the greatest thing ever. Um, and on a spreadsheet. I'm not an engineer, yeah. obviously. <laughs> uh, on a spreadsheet, we can see like, okay, more robots, less labor for people. And the way the system's set up right now, that doesn't work because you need to work to pay for the things that the robots are making you. If we can do it in sort of a gentle, non-revolutionary way, we can slowly migrate to not having to work so much, which back at end of World War II, when robots were just starting to come out, people were like, oh, wow, maybe we can have like a two-day work week and still have all the things we need. That is a feasible future where we have automation, we go and we do our little things, maybe a lot of care work helping people that need it, that really don't want to be hugged by a robot, and living a life with much more leisure time, maybe going for jogs, maybe spending more time surfing the internet, well, the robots do the jobs that we would have been doing. But our system does not support that right now. Yeah, so what if instead, like we had an economic system where everybody gets like a certain number of robots <laughs> that do certain things, and that way, like the jobs that we're doing now, our robots could be doing that for us, and then we could enjoy all of our wonderful leisure time with the money that we're making from our robots. Or not money, but whatever the robots are doing. <laughs> are you suggesting that socialism might be a good thing? Um, if you, I mean, if you think about a future where there are very, very, very few jobs, you would basically have to think about a system like socialism because, like I said, capitalism would not work in, in a society that had no jobs. Now, I'm interested to hear what Sean thinks about this because Sean works within politics and if any of these things were proposed, how do you think they would be received? I don't think that they would be received. <laughs> no. And that's, that's part of the crux of the issue. Um, right now, um, socialism is not an acceptable idea in um, 
in the United States and um, and I think that when you start talking about radical restructuring, um, that has proven to be, even, e even to the extent of discussing things like a carbon tax in the United States, that's proven to be uh, very, very difficult to have as a conversation uh, and something that will you know, probably take 20 or 30 years um, to get through. Our democratic system is just not designed to move quickly on big issues, particularly right now with the amount of corporate money that is in play in the system. It makes it very difficult for things that would seem to be dictated by the evidence as logical to actually happen. Um, there's a lot of propaganda efforts and a lot of PR efforts that are put up against those to stymie them. So I think part of the, the discussion has to be ways around that, uh, either through technological innovation, I mean that's what's driving, for instance, Tesla, um, or through um, discussions about how to force it to happen. Okay, I, I feel like um, we have depressed the crap out of everyone this morning. I am so sorry. So let's, let's just try and be optimistic for a moment. Uh, what could be awesome in the future, perhaps? Oh, I'm all over this. <laughs> um, if we manage to not beat each other into a paste before this happens, um, there is already technology to make our buildings 10 to 20 times more efficient than they currently are. You can go out and make a building that can almost sustain itself uh, just in its own space. If we adopt that and move forward, then we can live a life of almost Star Trek-like luxury as our robots do our work, as our energy gets produced for us, as our population slowly decreases, and we can just hang out with our friends, tell our robots what we want, and ride our bicycles around because it's nice and warm because we didn't really think of a way to fix that in time. That, that, one's, that's, that ship has sailed, but otherwise, great time to just hang out, do stuff. Um, I was going to say longevity. Um, I think that with our, as our healthcare and our healthcare technology gets better and better, we're sort of living longer and longer so we can have these longer, more productive lives. And they would have to be more productive because um, if people are living to extreme ages, like let's say like 130 or something, right now we have a system where people are retiring, like often before 60 years old or somewhere around there. Um, but if you know that you're going to live another 60 years, you can't really, you can't necessarily retire then. Um, but hopefully if we have robots that are just doing everything for us, we can live long lives that are extremely lazy. We could all just make art on the internet. Yes. <laughs> we like, we could be a society of fanfic authors and that's all we do. We would create the greatest fanfic that has ever been made. I'm not sure how I feel about this world. <laughs> infinite monkeys on infinite typewriters. That's, that's what I'm talking about. Okay, Sean. Well, I think uh, bouncing off the idea of longevity, uh, the conversation is probably going to change a, a little bit more towards purpose. And I think that people are, and, and social conversation is going to be a little bit more about 
the purpose of life and living a meaningful life and, and a reevaluation of what that means. And I think that that's going to be a really interesting and, and exciting conversation. So I do see that that physical change can probably drive a social and a moral and ethical change that I think is going to be really interesting and exciting to discuss. Um, also, I think that the transition to different kinds of energy and different kinds of transportation is really cool. I made a huge investment last year and bought a Tesla because I travel around and I talk about climate change all the time. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you, it is the coolest car ever. So I think that the idea of, of driving electric cars that can go zero to 60 in four seconds and that don't emit carbon is pretty awesome. And I think that, so I think that driving is going to be a lot more fun. Yeah. Um, so, and I think that, uh, there is, a, well, talk about the future um, has shifted it from the you know halcyon days of the 60s and 50s when everybody's going to be living like the Jetsons to kind of you know in the 80s we saw the switch to road warrior future. Um, I think that that's in part it's because of the limitations of our own imagination. It's difficult to project how innovation and new knowledge is going to transform the conversation. It always has. Um, this idea that there is a zero-sum game and for me to get ahead I have to take away from you or that there are limited resources on the earth and therefore everything's going to go to hell uh, is, has been proven wrong over and over and over again because of the power of science and engineering to create new knowledge and new solutions to our problems. So I'm still banking on human ingenuity. I think that there are unexpected and brilliant and amazing solutions just around the corner. Yeah, if technology can fix a lot of these um, research issues that we have been talking about on our panel, then instead of a future where we're all fighting over um, a limited amount of resources, we're looking at a future where we have basically unlimited resources. And so we can eat what we want and do what we want, and it doesn't have the same effects on the environment or on the population as it does today. You're listening to Science for the People, and we're learning about how climate change and overpopulation will shape the cities of the future. We'll have more of this panel recorded live at Convergence 2014 in just a minute. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Schell, and we're listening to panelists Sean Lawrence Otto, Jamie Bernstein, and Ryan Consul discuss the ways that future cities will tackle the challenges of climate change and feeding 9 billion people. All right. Uh, some people have their hands up. We're going to take some audience questions. Okay. So the question is, uh, so in the future, when we have a society of people that have never lived without the technology that they are now adopting specifically the robots that are their servants and are creating everything for them how does that society move forward when either the technology is taken away or the robots decide to become our overlords 
The overlord question is pretty easy. You have to try very, very hard to make a robot want something at all. And to make them want to conquer humanity is an unbelievably difficult task. That is not something that happens by accident by any stretch of the imagination. So it's not really a concern. You would have to have a consortium of dedicated programmers and engineers for a long time being finding a way to make robots our overlords. I would join that consortium. <laughs> yeah. All right, yeah. Uh, pre robot Nixon for president. Um, <laughs> uh, but we have that problem right now. If tomorrow the power went off, our society would crumble instantly. Most people do not know how to feed themselves for a week without power. So... I guess that's really all I have to say about that. If we take away our technology, we all die. Uh, the, the farmers go, oh, well, finally. And uh, society starts new. Some people will survive that. Uh, most of us won't. I'm not one of them. Okay. No one has... I don't know how you follow that. All right. Sure. So talking about concrete, uh, the question was about concrete and about the uh, carbon intensity of concrete production and how we would deal with that in the future, uh, in, especially with the increased uh, moves towards more urban living. Um, there, are, there are a lot of uh, building materials that are uh, emerging on the horizon. Uh, particularly, there's uh, been a lot of looking at using carbon nanotubes uh, as uh, a basis for different building components because they are super, super strong compared to, for instance, steel. Um, the rigidity factor uh, that that concrete has is is helpful and not helpful when you're talking about, for instance, uh, building a high-rise. Um, you want high-rises to be able to sway. So there are a lot of, of, of new materials that are being engineered right now that could substitute there are also different ways of engineering concrete using microorganisms that people are looking at that won't uh, that that will secrete a concrete-like substance, but that are not as carbon intensive. Uh, so I think that we're going to see a lot more innovation uh, in building materials as uh, the next two decades pass, and I would be surprised if we didn't move quite a bit away from concrete, because beyond its intensity of energy use, it's also, it's, uh, it's really inefficient as a building material. Um, I just wanted to spin a tiny bit off that. Something that we tend to see with it, this is like low energy and, you know, has a very low carbon footprint. A lot of the time we see that as being very local, like, well, this light bulb is running, it takes very little energy but there's an energy balance. How much energy did it take to mine the resources that built that, uh, to assemble it, to ship it? As that has become apparent and be as energy becomes more expensive, all of the manufacturing companies are coming up with new processes that are much more efficient. And as this becomes a driving factor economically, I have seen in industry after industry, companies finding ways to save massive amounts of energy they just didn't use to have to consider it and now that it is a consideration they've doubled their doubled their efficiency halved their output of carbon emissions just because it's expensive to spit it out so that process is starting to happen so even with materials right now like concrete that are very wasteful 
people are coming up with very clever ways, like microbial systems, to reduce that whole bubble. Yeah, and not just on concrete, but basically in anywhere where we're talking about there being resource constraints, the more resource constraints there are, the more... Um, the more reward there is for companies or people that can come up with something, some sort of technology that eases those resourcing resource demands. So we, uh, a lot of the problems that we sort of, the apocalyptic problems that we have been talking about on this panel um, may not be so bad because there will be a lot of money in people who, for people who can solve those problems. And um, if, there is a technology for it, um, which, I mean, maybe in some places there just are not. But if there is, like, a lot of people are going to come up with this stuff. We're looking at a future with lots of new and interesting things. Um, just as another tiny thing, carbon nanotubes you brought up, it is technically possible to have a solar array suck carbon and a factory suck carbon out of the air and turn it into carbon nanotubes so we can turn our greenhouse gases into building materials from the sky technically possible <laughs> yeah so to repeat the question um if if i heard you correctly you're basically saying that in the past um which is correct um it, the whenever there's kind of been more automation um people have moved into other fields and that that should continue in the future. So if a lot of our current jobs, if robots take those over, um, your, uh, your, your hypothetical future would have people moving m more likely into creative fields. Um, and I think that's totally correct. And that was, uh, I, I think would be the first step, but I'm imagining a hypothetical future where robots are doing a lot of our creative economy stuff. Um, so I was going like way out because I, I think you're right. Um, in the short term, like, and this is what we've seen every time we've had something like this in the past. Um, whenever there's been more automation in one field, um, it might hurt in the beginning, but eventually people move into other fields. And yeah, as you mentioned, we are no longer uh, making our money today with pickaxes. Um, but I, I was trying to imagine a far away hypothetical future where even most of the creative economy was taken over by robots, um, which, it, like, if robots are just doing everything, um, except for maybe, I don't know, maybe art. Are you telling me that my super fanfic future is going to be taken over by robots, too? Possibly. I, I... <laughs> Um, but, but like you mentioned, there would be a lot of unemployment because there will start to be less and less jobs that only humans can do. Um, and as it starts, that starts to squeeze, um, just the, the entire basis of our current economy would collapse. Um, I don't necessarily think that socialism is, is the answer, especially to anything today. Um, but, um, I can um, I can certainly imagine a future where capitalism is not the answer, and in that case, we would need to come up with something else. All right. So the question was referring to solar roadways, and that is replacing our tarmac with solar panels, which has a lot of neat implications. They could heat themselves and melt the snow, so we no longer need snow plows. Uh, they could power their own lights beside them. If we do it really well, they can power the towns around them, and that is 
really neat. There are a lot of technical hurdles around it. Those solar panels would have to be very durable or driving cars on them. There's also the tri yeah, cars, trucks, tanks on occasion, parades. Um, yeah, exactly. They will get damaged and destroyed, um, and they have to put up with all sorts of things. Those are technical hurdles we might be able to get over. The real question is, what is the energy demand to make one of those panels? If it is not enough uh, in excess of what that panel will generate, you cannot make them. If you make a, pan a solar pan, and this problem was only beaten in the 2000s, that you can build a solar panel that will spit out more energy than it takes to make the solar panel. So if we can't beat that curve and make those panels tough and efficient with less, a little enough energy, they're not going to work. Okay, so the question was about uh, education demands for living in the future society and what, what would the demands be? Would it be more specialized or more generalized? And, <clears throat> you know, I've written a fair amount about this, and one of the biggest problems that um, we are seeing right now is a transition towards a commodification of education, uh, even to the point of considering student-driven universities uh, where the students just pick and choose from an a la carte menu of courses. But the problem with that is that often you don't know what you need to know. Uh, that's why you're going to school, to learn things that you haven't thought about. So empowering the student to craft their own education is often a vast disservice to the student. And one thing that I really advocate for is uh, for living with the future society and the future society is an increased focus on liberal arts education with a high science um, component. I think that that's really critical because we need to be able to create people who can innovate by thinking at the junctures where different fields overlap. And we're seeing that more and more, particularly in the sciences, that specialization is boxing people in, and um, the people that are able to innovate uh, and that are creating the new economies, the new technologies that are driving things forward, are people that have a broad liberal education, liberal arts education uh, with science specialization. Uh, so it's people who know how to communicate and that who have a lot of interest in art and may even, may even be, have a background in art, but that were also really interested in engineering, say, or really interested in the biosciences. And those are the people that are coming up with new ideas, figuring out to sequence the human genome, things like that, uh, new solutions, innovation. So I think moving forward, we're seeing less and less siloization of fields. We're seeing what... Um, uh, E.O. Wilson calls the consilience of knowledge, where fields of knowledge are overlapping, where computer science is overlapping with neuroscience, or where biomedicine is overlapping with engineering. Uh, and we're going to see more and more and more and more of that as our knowledge base increases. So how do you navigate that kind of complex interaction? The only way that you can do it is with a more liberal arts education, but with a very strong science base. Yeah, and also less like skill-based type education because you don't need as many skills, but uh, you do need, um, as Sean mentioned, to know how to think. Um, so more like thinking type jobs and philosophy and creativity will become more important as skills become less important. Right. It's back to the creative economy that mm -hmm. this gentleman was talking about. All right. The, the question again is uh, what happens when the robot 
overlords decide uh, we don't need humans. We that they aren't. We we have a purpose beyond humans, and we're just gonna start ignoring the humans, let them do their own thing, and we'll do our own robot society thing. Basically, and, so they turn into teenagers, right? Yeah, yeah. Basically, when robots <laughs> become teenagers, and it's easy to imagine that point because it's a very human thing to do. But again, you would have to have a massive consortium of highly skilled technical people figuring out how to make a robot want that. Like that is that is a, the kind of mistake that takes decades of research to make. Now, I like. Where we can jump into science fiction and go, well, what happens if somebody, that consortium does go, because we like to try AI things and makes one robot that feels that way, and that robot goes and makes a bunch more robots. That could happen, and on that day, uh, well, the robots are going to take over the world, and then we're probably going to quickly or slowly die off. Yay. Or become robots. Actually, that is a more likely future that I think is probably a completely different episode is the merging of um, robot and human and where that line will blur. And I think that is a more likely inevitability. Uh, we were doing so well with the optimism. <laughs> and we are completely out of time. Thank you very much to the panelists and to the audience. You've been listening to Cities of the Future, a panel discussion recorded live at Convergence 2014. Be sure to visit our website at scienceforthepeople.ca, and you'll find links to more from Jamie Bernstein, Ryan Consul, and Sean Lawrence Otto, and also info about next year's Convergence. You'll also find links to connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Google+, or to subscribe to the show in iTunes. Now, before we go, we wanted to give a signal boost to the Science Stands Climate March happening in New York City on Sunday, September 21st. While, unfortunately, none of the team here at Science for the People will be able to attend, and believe us, we definitely wish we could attend, uh, we do want to make sure that any of our listeners in the New York area know the details so that maybe just a little bit of Science for the People might be there in spirit. Science Stands is part of the People's Climate March, a massive history-making march in New York City right before a crucial UN climate summit for world leaders. Organizers estimate over 100,000 people are expected to attend, and over 1,000 different groups are part of the organizing effort. Many people will be watching the summit, so organizers want us to take to the streets and urge our leaders, both globally and locally, to act on climate change. Among the marchers will be many scientists protesting massive cuts to science funding, attacks on their credibility, and the muzzling of researchers' freedom of speech to discuss their work openly and in public. Even though this march is happening in the United States, the topic hits close to home here in Canada as well, where our federal government has made massive funding cuts. Worse, they are muzzling scientists, preventing them from discussing their research with the media or the public without first obtaining several levels of bureaucratic permission slips. If you've noticed a lack of Canada-focused climate change interviews on this show, it is not because we don't want to talk to our local researchers about these issues. It's because getting permission to do so is almost impossible these days. So if you're a scientist, a science journalist, a blogger, or just a lover of all things sciencey, and you plan to be in the New York area on Sunday, September 21st, 
you should definitely check out the Science Stands Climate March on their website at www.sciencestands.org. And if you're already fired up and planning to march with them, uh, the meetup point will be at the Hayden Planetarium at the American Museum of Natural History at 10 a.m. on September 21st. But do visit their website at uh, sciencestands.org and let them know that you're coming by clicking the big Yes, I'll Be There link. And if you're like us here at Science for the People and you can't be there in person, please do lend them your spiritual support and follow along during the march. You can find them on Twitter at Science Stands or on their Facebook page at facebook.com slash science stands. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week on Science for the People. Mm-hmm.